0: I hope you're good this morning. We're going to dive right in to this third week of God Has a Name. Again, we've been talking about this. If you have not uh, read this or had a chance to get it, you can get it on Amazon. You can get a Kindle version, whatever. God Has a Name by John Mark Comer uh, is what this series is kind of rooted in. And this is a great book as it relates to unpacking Exodus 34, five to seven and God's self-disclosure of himself. Uh, John Mark is a great writer. Uh, It's not a hard, complicated read, although he does do a deep dive into um, God's name, even into Yahweh um, as a proper name for God and all these things. I, I think you'll find it rich and fulfilling Uh, but not overly academic and burdensome to read. Uh, It's a long weekend, so I'm dressed super casual. I hope you're feeling great about things. Um, Let's just enter into this. We are in the next line of God's self-disclosure, but we're going to go back and just read this whole thing again uh, to provide the context and to remind us again of what God says about himself, I want to remind you, this is the most quoted text of scripture by the Bible itself and the writers of the Bible. So within the Bible, the writers of the Bible quote these verses more than any other text. This is God revealing to us, revealing to Moses, not just what he does, not just what his attributes are, but this is God revealing in a personal way who he is. So if you've got a Bible, get it out Exodus 34:5 to 7. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, "Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and he called out his own name Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, "Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy." I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. I can't wait till we get to teach on that. It's actually so profound. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. So what have we learned so far? What has God revealed to us about his identity so far, about his own nature? Here's what God is saying. As God gives Moses his personal name, Yahweh is the third person reference for God. So in other passages, when God met Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. God is saying to Moses, I am. And that's actually a personal, intimate name for himself. Well, Yahweh is the third-person version of "I am," and it's actually literally "He is." So God is again; He's not saying, "Moses, this is what I do. This is; these are the attributes of my omnipotence that I'm all-powerful, that I'm my omnipresence that I'm everywhere all the time." Um, He's not giving him attributes. He's saying, Moses, this is who I am. And literally, I am, or the third-person version, Yahweh, means that he is who he will be. Vis-a-vis, it means I'm unchanging and consistent. I am always this way. So in our life, I don't know about you, but I can't say about myself that I am always the same. (laughs) I come into different circumstances and situations, different pressure points, different stress environments, different things going on in my life. And I respond and react differently to them, unfortunately, and sometimes for the better, sometimes maybe even a lot of times for the worse. And I think that if you just reflect on your own life and moments where you've acted, and you may even say, I acted out of character in this moment. That never happens with God. So what God is saying is, this is the way I always am. I'm consistently and always this way. I don't shift or change with fluctuating circumstances. And we need to know this. Again, our whole premise of this series is that before we get into Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, before we finish Ephesians, we're stuck in Ephesians 4, where Paul is beginning to talk about Uh, relationships and the spiritual warfare that happens as we relate to each other. Before we finish that, we have to come back to a baseline of who God really is, not our distorted own caricature of God. And God is saying, I don't change with circumstances. You and I probably change with differing circumstances, but God is saying, I don't change What's happening around you and in your life and around the world right now doesn't cause God to flip-flop and change. He's not kind of like one moment this way and another moment the other way. He doesn't fly off into, um, you, know, uh, you know, temper tantrums. And he, he's not uh, responding to life the way that we do. He never changes. And then he says, not only do I not change my baseline towards you the very first thing I want you to know and again in Hebrew writing sequence matters and what comes first is of primary importance he says uh, not only do I not change not only does my my demeanor and disposition and character stay consistent always all the time that character number one is that I'm compassionate and like Pastor Brenda mentioned, that's a feeling word, and it literally derives from a root that, that means female womb. And it's a feeling word that describes how a mother or a parent feels about their children. So God is saying, I never change. And what I want you to know first is that I deeply, deeply love you, and that will never change. My feelings towards you uh, are... are like a mother with a child in the womb. And remember when we were talking in Matthew chapter one, Matthew in one, two, three, and four is giving us this grand picture theology of God. And we talked about the theology of God's love in chapter one as seen in Joseph, that the kind of love that God, uh, that characterizes God is a love that covers. That's that same picture of a a woman with a child in her womb, and God is saying, I never change. I'm always consistent. I always will be this way. And the very first thing I want you to know is I love you with a love that covers like a, like a mother with her child or a parent with their child. And not only do I feel this way about you, I'm merciful and gracious. And that's an action word. So not only do I feel this way about you, my, my, my interaction with you is not just relegated to feeling, I actually act on that. I act in your life, I want to act in your life in ways that you don't deserve, to lavish my kindness and my goodness and my love on you in ways that you could never deserve with power that you don't possess. I want to do things in your life that you could never do for yourself. And God is painting this picture of not only how he feels about us, but how he acts toward us. And we talked last week about God being slow to anger. And that, um, those two Hebrew words, Orek, Apayim, God being long of the nostrils. So again, even if you're just listening to this, sitting there watching, I want you to just do an exercise. Just... Close your lips, purse them together, and just draw one deep, long breath through your nostrils. God is slow to anger. So again, God is saying to Moses, I never change. I'm always consistent. You can count on that. Uh, I love you. My feelings towards you are that of like a mother with a child and womb, and I want to act in your life in ways that that you don't deserve with goodness, that you don't deserve with blessing you don't can't earn or work for. And I wanna display my power. I wanna move in power in your life to bring about my goodness in ways that you never could for yourself. And more than that, I'm not temperamental. I'm not volatile. God isn't given to outbursts. His anger is not like our anger. Our anger so often is a result of us not getting what we want or something being taken from us that we wanted. But God's anger isn't like that. The good news is he's slow to anger. The bad news is he's slow to anger. He does get angry, but he gets angry and upset with evil and wickedness and the consequences of sin in our life he doesn't throw a temper tantrum because you've upset him he gets angry with the 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 inner working and the destruction of sin and evil in our lives and we can make God angry but we have to work really hard at it in a sense he says here's who I am this is the way I always am and you can bank on it I love you deeply like a mother loves her child in the womb and i act on that love by working in ways you don't deserve in your life with power you don't have more than that i'm slow to anger i'm not gonna get thrown into a temper tantrum because something doesn't work out the way i wanted it for you or because you know um you you're you're being difficult in this situation I don't have outbursts of anger, God is saying. I'm not rattled by your circumstances. I'm not rattled by what's happening in the world. I don't lose my temper, and I don't get angry in the way that you do. My anger is rooted in my love for you, the way that I feel about you. And we come to this next line that God says he's filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Let's just break down these two words, love and faithfulness. The the Hebrew word for love in uh the original language is hased and um Hebrew is a guttural language and you'd literally pronounce it something like hased, right? Kind of let from the back of your throat sort of feeling. But this word hased is a sweeping panoramic word. We find it all through scripture. But there's no adequate translation for it, or equivalent for it in English. In English, um, often the Bible translators are attaching other words to it to try and give it its more full meaning. So, love in our in our modern, you know, post enlightenment Western progressive worldview, love has lost almost all of its meaning and significance. God is not talking about emotion here. So he's already covered that, how he feels toward us. God is talking about something much deeper and more significant than just feeling like he likes us or getting butterflies in his stomach uh, around us. That's not what God is talking about. Those things do happen for God, but he's already covered that. Um, the writers in scripture often, uh, the translators often kind of conjoin another word with it. Like, so you'll see the word or the phrase steadfast love or unfailing love or covenant loyalty. This is our, our attempt to try and express the full meaning that God is dealing with here. The full meaning of said in scripture. It's a deep, deep word that's got so many facets to it. Uh, You'll even note in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul devotes a whole chapter of scripture to trying to define for us the complexity and the breadth and the depth of the love, the characterization and the characteristics of the love of God for us. And a Hebrew scholar named Daniel Bloch says it this way, the Hebrew word hased or chesed cannot be translated with one English word. It's a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Interestingly, in this uh, self-disclosure of God, this word *hesed* is the only characteristic that he repeats. And that's very important because God wants to drive this home. My feeling towards you is this deep covenant relational love. I don't just, you know, like, I don't just like you. I have a deep love for you. And that word faithfulness is emet. So chesed and emet. And emet literally means trustworthy. Or truth, and it has the idea of reliability. Now, these two words are put together for a reason. And there's a technical term I can't even remember from a grammatical. um, Oh, yeah. Hendiocese. Wait. Hendiades, right, Hendiades. I'm I'm not a huge grammar nerd, but a Hendiades is a literary device. So this is what's happening with these two words. A Hendiades is a literary device where two nouns, these are nouns, are smashed together to help define each other, okay? So God's love is his faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is his love. That's the, the depth and breadth that God is trying to express to us here. So he's not just talking about how he feels. He's already covered his emotion to us when he talked about being compassionate. He's talking about something deeper. So hased and amet are about his loyalty. How he never, okay, I want you to, if you've been tuning out, come back with me. Hased and amet, I am uh, filled with love and faithfulness to you. Are, is God literally saying he never under any circumstances abandons his people. God is literally saying my nature, my disposition, my unchanging baseline is to be loyal and faithful to the bitter end no matter what. So God is already revealed to Moses, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. What I am never changes. This is the consistent baseline of my life. And most importantly, you need to know that I'm compassionate, that I feel about you the way a a mother feels about her child in her womb, and that I'm gracious. I want to act and work in your life based on the way I feel about you and that I'm slow to anger. I'm not going to throw temper tantrums. I'm not volatile. I'm not easily annoyed with you. I'm not just you know responding to you or life circumstances by getting frustrated and angry all the time. When you've had it up to here, I haven't had it up to here. And more than that, I am totally trustworthy and loyal. I will be faithful to you to the bitter end. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter if you don't live up to your end of the bargain. I will always be faithful to my end of the bargain. And this is brings us back to these, these large sweeping themes of scripture, and one of those themes is God's covenant love. To get a better picture for that, let's go to Genesis 15. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to read it on here because it's faster. This is one of the most obscure and weird uh, stories in Scripture. And I want to unpack it for you because this is really a, a great example of God's hased and emet, God's faithful love, God's trustworthy, non-compromising love toward us. Genesis 15, God has already kind of called Abram out and made a promise that he will bless him and make him the father of the nations. And it says uh, in Genesis 15, verse one, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? So Abram is already recognizing there's so often in our life a distinction between what we are experiencing in the moment and the promise of God that we believe he's spoken over our life. And Abram is struggling with this tension like, God, you've promised me this, but there's like one major missing ingredient. I don't have a son. How is any of this going to come to pass when I'm not seeing in my life today the fruit of what you promised? I don't know about you, but this is like a reality in my life. God, I don't see it. I I, I can't see this anywhere. In fact, maybe your life looks totally opposite to God's promise. Maybe you feel like he has broken and unfulfilled every promise you feel he's made to you. But this is what God says, or sorry, what Abraham says, since you've given me no children... Eleazar of Damascus a servant of my household will inherit all of my wealth you've given me no descendants of my own so one of my servants will be my heir then the lord said to him no your servant will not be your heir abram is looking at his circumstances and going well this is this is what it's going to be and god is saying no 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 abram that's not what it will be for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir then the lord took abram outside and said to him look up into the sky, and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have, all right? So Genesis 15, 6. Let's keep moving. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. He hasn't seen any of it. Nothing that God has promised him is materializing. Everything seems to be falling apart around him. God brings him out, and Abram restores faith in God. Okay, God... I, Somehow, I'm going to trust in your ability to bless my life in the way that you said you would. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? I don't know if this is possible. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Yep, got those in the shed, in the backyard, you know. Maybe not in the shed, that wouldn't be very humane, but Abraham gets them all. So Abraham, verse 10, presented all of these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. This is where it gets weird for us, okay? He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. So God is already prophetically speaking about uh, their captivity in Egypt. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Again, God is slow to anger, right? Verse 17, after the sun went down and darkness fell, this gets even more weird, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I've given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. All right, so that's where it gets weird. If you are super confused right now, it's okay. Don't be. Uh, it's really strange for us to kind of conceptualize and understand what's going on here, but I want to try and point a few things out to you. So this uh, this, this ritual that they are engaging in, that Abram Abraham is engaging in God with, was a common ritual, all right? It was called cutting the covenant, and actually it was practiced in um, all the time. And and what they would do is when two people would enter into a binding agreement or a covenant, the closest thing really we have to this in our uh, our day and age is marriage, a marriage covenant. When two people would enter into a binding agreement, they would uh, sacrifice these animals. They would cut them in half, split them apart, and then they would both walk between them. And when they were doing this, what they were literally saying is if I do not fulfill my end of this agreement, may I be like these animals. You can shed my blood. You can actually take my life if I do not uphold my end of the agreement. So this, this was a very serious ritual that people would enter into together to form this covenant between each other and agree that if one of them was not faithful with their end blood would be spilled. What happened to the animals would happen to them. That was the agreement. Here's what's unique about this. God calls or causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep but uh, God is the only one who passes between these animals. God is the only one who goes between these animals and fulfills that part of the covenant. The smoking fire pot and the torch uh, of fire are are illustrations and illusions of God. God often in scripture is seen to come in a cloud or with smoke and with fire. And God is saying, look, I'm, I'm making this covenant with you with my very self, my very presence. And I don't need you, Abram, to be a part of this because I am making this covenant and saying to you that I will be faithful to you regardless of whether or not you are faithful to me. This is, this is uh, unheard of. This is uh, crazy talk from God. Literally, he's saying to Abram, look, it doesn't matter if you uphold your end of the bargain. I will always be faithful to you. I am the one passing between these animals. And here's what God is saying. If I need to uphold my end of the bargain, it'll be my blood that is shed, not yours, Abram. If blood must be spilled, it'll be my own. I wonder if you're thinking the way I am and moving thousands of years forward in this storyline to Jesus. This is what God was willing to do to fulfill his end of this covenant with us. So even if Abram doesn't keep his end of the bargain, God would. Even if Abram was unfaithful, God would be faithful. This is what he's saying to Moses. I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. You can trust me. You can count on me. You can run from me. You can scorn me. You can do all of these things, but I will always be faithful to you. This is how Paul wrote it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, 2.13, this is, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, he's quoting scripture and he says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. God is revealing himself to Moses and he's saying, not only do I have great compassion, do I feel about you the way a mother feels of, about a child in the womb? And not only do I wanna act in your life in ways that demonstrate my goodness and my power and my blessing. Not only am I slow to anger, I'm not going to be thrown into temper tantrums because of how you respond to me or react to the world around you. You can trust me. You can count on me. I will never leave you. I will always be faithful to finish what I started. It doesn't matter if you go off for a few years and, and, uh, you know, and reject me and deny me. If you come back to me, I will always be faithful. I will never reject you in that way. God's promise to us is not that things will be easy. In fact, in John 16 Jesus said the opposite. In this world you will have trouble, but he said take heart that I have overcome the world. Even when things look like they're falling apart at the seams, even when you've been unfaithful to me, even when you've reneged on your part of the deal, even when you've walked away from me, even when you've sinned against me, even when you've grieved me, even when you've done all of these things, I will still be faithful to you. I will never leave you or forsake you I won't abandon you I'm not kicking you to the curb because of the choices that you've made in the past I'm giving you time to repent and turn back to me I am here I haven't moved you may have moved you may be wandering in the wilderness but I've never moved and I'm always here for you to come back to and be faithful to God's promise to Abram and his promise to us It's not that he'll bless us with material wealth or a great spouse or the the person, the woman or man of our dreams or the perfect job or what our, our ideal vision of our life is. His promise is that he will bless us and that promise is looking more at eternity than it is on the temporal around us today. He's saying for eternity I will be faithful to you. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. What God is saying is you can count on me, I'm trustworthy. You can count on me to be so faithful to you that I'll even take the things that the enemy has meant for evil. I'll take the things that you've done that have you know, are, are potentially damaging and destroying your life, and I have the power and capacity to turn them from evil into good in your life. You can count on me that this is my baseline dip- disposition about you. In his book, Love Has a Name, John Mark Comer says this, our hope isn't that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Our hope is that no matter what happens to us, Jesus is back from the dead, and anything is possible. How? What are you sitting in right now in your life? Are you maybe more on that side of feeling like things are just coming unraveled, or that this year, I know for some of you, this year or year and a half has been brutal, and you're discouraged, and you're disheartened, and you're you're struggling even in your faith. God, why is all of this happening to me? What is going on around me? And I'm here to remind you that our circumstances are not an indicator of God's desire to bless our lives, of God's desire to act in our lives in power, of God's desire to turn everything the enemy's meant for evil into good. Even the worst of the worst in this last season, God can redeem it and restore it and renew it and rebuild your life on a solid foundation that is him. He's the one that passed between the halves of the animal. He's the one that said, even if you've been unfaithful to me, even if you've been trapped in habitual sin, even if you've been running from me and rejecting me, even if you've been scorning me, I will still be faithful if you repent, if you turn around and 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 walk back in my direction, if you change the way you think about your thinking and your life if you change your priorities and seek me again with all of your heart you will find me and you will see that I can redeem everything even the worst of the worst our circumstances are not an accurate gauge of God's blessing sometimes we get this a little bit backwards and wrong we think that, you know, in seasons where we're experiencing the things that we want in our life, that that means God is blessing us, and that when we are walking through difficult, hard, painful circumstances, that somehow God has abandoned us or rejected us. No. Remember, God said, I'm slow to anger. I'm not, I'm not acting in your life based on the whims of the, the way the wind is blowing or what you've done in the moment. I'm actually filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. You can trust me. So I wanna call you again to put your trust and your hope in that God. Maybe you've formed a different caricature of God in your own mind. Maybe you've been sidelined by discouragement and despair and pain and hurt. All of these things are real and they affect us. But I wanna turn your gaze again to the God who revealed himself to Moses and said, this is the way that I am and I will always be this way and I'm not changing. Nothing in your life could ever change this about me. I want to turn your attention again and your gaze toward the God who will never leave you or forsake you. That he can take everything that's been happening in your life and turn it for good. That he wants to bless you, not just materially or in your relationships or in your work, but for eternity he wants to bless you. And I want to call you back into following him, putting your faith and your trust in him today. This is should radically reshape our whole lives. This is the way that God feels about you, and nothing can change that. Let's just pray. Father, we we don't even fully understand this, but I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, even right now, for a supernatural work of your spirit to bring revelation and insight. Father, I pray for those who are really discouraged right now or disheartened, for those who have been walking through incredible pain or sorrow or just feel like they're being pressed on every side, that you would breathe faith into them, not because of what's happening around them, but because of who you are, that they would see you in a whole new way and again find themselves renewed with the faith to put their lives in your hands, to trust you at your word. Thank you, Father, that when we are unfaithful, you will always be faithful. I thank you that we can trust you in every season of our lives. Amen.